Hi, it's me, Max Quinn, and it's Ben Lee's second last day in hotel quarantine in Sydney. Which means it's our second last podcast episode, and I gotta say, I'm gonna miss that guy. Hang in there tomorrow to find out what happens when Ben is reintroduced into the wild like one of those big, beautiful lions that they make documentaries about sometimes. Today, a model for conspiracy resistance and Ben's cryptocurrency journey with the platform Steemit. Spoiler alert, it didn't work out. But the intent was there and he learned some stuff, so we'll call it even. The full story coming up right now on Ben Lee in quarantine. I had a blowout in my voice right at the end. Ah, Jesus. Ben, quarantine Eve, how are you feeling? Oh, man. Well, quarantine release Eve. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, sorry, these kind of distinctions in semantics <laughs> become important on day 13. Um, no, we're really good. Yeah, we had the, the, you know, the cops came in and gave us our all clear and these orange bracelets. And it's funny because we're just, uh, we're a little bit in disbelief. Like we're kind of floating around. I had an idea based on our chat yesterday. Yeah. I think that there might need to be a hub or an aggregator for conspiracy dismantlers. So this was based on the listener question that we had yesterday about where can we go to learn more? What are the resources? And how can I find out and stay up to date with what's going on? And from the outside, I was thinking about it. It really feels like the thing that has allowed these like batshit QAnon theories to proliferate conspiracies. I don't want to say theories, conspiracies. It's how organized it is and how centralized it is. You know what I mean? Like it's got Aikun and all of these websites on the same server that this Watkins family have. And if you want to find it, if you're looking for it, people can find it. And I was thinking about the roots of that movement being centralized to those locations and Reddit for a time and all of these um, fake news websites. I was thinking, like, where is Resistance HQ? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, I think you're right. Ultimately, it's energy and some money. Yeah. I mean, time, energy, and money that creates those resources. So when you have um, when you have a concerted effort to influence a political system or a country, and there's you know there's backers to that, and there's uh, there's a lot of different interests that benefit from that. Um, but the reality is that getting people into reality-based thinking is much less sexy and often less marketable than making them scared. Yeah. Uh, I, I was watching something. Um, my friend Lara, who used to play music with me, um, she did the music for the Paris Hilton documentary. Oh, cool. And so so I was watching that on YouTube because um, I wanted to hear her music and everything. And um, And there was something I think Paris said in it about that the words lashed out um, give you, it's something to do with the dopamine spike yeah. in the negative. Do you remember? Did he say that? Um, yeah. And it's, it, this is to do with the way languages work to create clickbait, basically. Um, but I was thinking of how there is a lot of talk about how to win this war of ideas, there's an argument that you ultimately have to play the same game. Mm. Um, and you have to win the narrative war. Um, and I think one of the things we have on our side is that the actual truth of 
the way and the methods and the people behind QAnon is actually insane enough to give people a dopamine spike by learning about it. Right. Um, it's, it's not boring. It's not boring. And I think that one of the challenges is when the truth is boring. Um, so I've, yeah, I've been kind of on this uh, trip of trying to find the right journalist. Or, like, it's happening slowly. CNN did a really good article this week. But ultimately, it's going to be about journalists' ability to tell the story and to share the narrative in a compelling way. Right. It does it justice, yeah, and that hasn't quite happened yet. Because it's, I mean, the thing is that it's meaty, right? Like it, there's a lot to it. It's a big, chunky hit of information. I don't know about you. I'm a millennial. I see things like that on the internet and I'm like, too long. You know what I mean? Like uh, it, it is just, it is my natural reaction to be like 15 minutes. I could mm. watch four videos in that time. Totally. I think there's, I think that's why I was talking to one journalist and arguing for things that were more... Uh, character-based on some of the people who were involved because they're a very strange bunch of characters. And I always think if someone really uh, did profile pieces exploring, like, who's Lisa Clapier, who's Thomas Schoenberger, who who are these people, um, and what's possibly driving them in their mission, I think that's the kind of thing that might be able to capture the imagination of the the reader a little more. Yeah, I was thinking today about... um this story that Foster Kamer shared on Twitter from the New York Times. Um, So Foster Kamer, do you know that guy? He's the editor of Futurism. Not sure of his name. I might have read some of his pieces though. He's really good. But today he shared just this New York Times article that is basically a character piece on Cookie Monster Mural puzzles artist and enrages property owner. And what it's all about is this scam that someone has cooked up to paint a giant Soviet cookie monster on the side of a bakery in Peoria in Illinois. And the person who paid the artist to do it did not own the building, did not give the right information, like is now untraceable, vanished. And the thing that I was, I was so captivated in reading this story and what it, what, what it felt like was kind of like learning about the extreme absurdity of the QAnon stuff where you're like, and she did what with what pizza shop? Yeah, and also um, when you're talking about um, essentially, you know, propaganda in which, like the act, say, say with Pizzagate, mm. the actual disinformation is so seductive because it's so wacko. Yeah, um, it's like someone sitting there going, "I'm going to tell you the craziest thing." <laughs> it's 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 quite hard to refocus people's attention as soon as you mention Pizzagate. The human mind, it gets like tempted down these underground tunnels into this sort of subterranean landscape. Um, And it's like, it's just funny how seductive the subject matter is to get lost in. Right. Um, And and how you keep people focused while exposing it is, it's going to be a real challenge. It's almost the difference between being the guy who can tell the best story at the party and being the person who can ask the best questions at the party. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I, like that. I mean, I think a journalist, um, a, a good journalist uh, it can play both those roles. One I would think, hope. Because they, they essentially should ask the questions that their readers want asked and investigate answers to it. So, yeah, it's a really, um, it, it's incredibly delicate and it, it makes you understand how certain subjects that are complicated, that have complicated answers, 
um, things like racism and inequality in our society or um, dark money and the way money has influenced politics. Yeah. Did you see that documentary, Active Measures? No, I don't know about that one. It's really good. It's about basically how all the ways that Russian money found its way into Donald Trump's life uh-huh. and what that what the implications are of that or could be. But it's so multi-pronged, the answer. Like... There, conspiracies are very tidy in a sense. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that in order for corruption to work, it has to be so deeply embedded within a system that it's almost like it, that's one of the challenges with things like Twitter, that you have, you know, however many characters you have to tell the to tell the story. And we're basically dealing with incredibly complex ideas so each tweet should be an invitation to investigate further and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's really, really interesting. The other thing that I've been promising that we would talk about is blockchain and your involvement with cryptocurrency and Steemit. And I wonder if now is a good time to jump off and jump into that because, yeah. well, as I understand it, can I start here uh, just to um, act as the voice of base knowledge for the yeah. audience here? Like cryptocurrency... And social media are sort of brought together by this platform called Steam, where the unique thing about it is that you can gain more crypto, Steam, by posting content on their platform. Is that about what this is? Yeah, I mean, it sort of, it didn't work, ultimately. It's yeah. a failed experiment. Um, so this is all you're speaking essentially in past tense. Yes. I mean, it is still there, but it didn't really work. But the concept of it to me was, it made a lot of sense. In the advertising, social media, the social media business is in advertising. Yeah. But their value that they offer their advertisers is the user content. And data. Yeah, so it just would make sense that the user should be a profit participant in the advertising dollar. Makes sense. So what I I liked about the idea of a, a social media platform that rewards users financially. So the way that would work is basically um, with Steam and it was like you could upvote, which is liking a post, mm-hmm. and the more, basically the bigger the account was that liked it, the more the vote was worth a little bit. But you could kind of like basically like earn a few bucks in principle for posting something, which, you know, it's kind of interesting as an artist where in a sense, our entire medium has kind of become demonetized. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought, well, we're basically told that in order to be a musician now, you have to live on social media. So if that's going to be the main job, maybe that should be the main income. So I kind of liked the idea that why not? You know what I mean? It made a lot of sense to me. As far as the crypto side of it, look, there's a lot of people that are like super hardcore about cryptocurrency and to whatever degree, it probably is going to replace paper money mm. um, because why in, in every other in every other realm, technology, uh, digital information has replaced analog information. So why not have, if I can have my song, all my royalties are now basically calculated digitally through streaming. Yeah. Why why wouldn't it be the same to basically keep track of money? So So I look at that as sort of an inevitability, like, with um, and the other thing that I like, I like about the principle of cryptocurrency, is that um, 
you don't need to have a bank account to use it. Mm. So, look, as far as sort of middle-class people, this doesn't make a really big difference. But if you look around the world, the amount of people that don't have bank accounts, essentially people living sort of below the poverty line, often have mobile phones. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you do have a solution where people can pay each other, like right now I have um, Venmo and PayPal. Yeah, yeah. I know there's Cash App. I know that... um, Here in Australia, the one one that's popular is Beamit. Beamit, Beamit. Yeah, Yeah, so my friend did something through Beamit the other day. Um, But you have to connect it to a credit card or a bank account. So the idea Mm. of like being able to send money phone to phone, why not? So anyway, it all kind of made sense. I got on board with it. I was posting a lot and promoting and enjoying it. Um, Ultimately, I think it became subject to the idea that um, because it was so so small, um, it was sort of a little too influenceable in the sense of whose posts were getting attention and getting upvoted and stuff. But I also think there's a strong argument to be made for blockchain. Basically, again, I am not a super tech person, but the principle of it is that it's verifiable who's posting on it and it can't be interfered with. So whether you're talking about journalism or um, another use of blockchain that's interesting is actually in, um, uh, like, there's a there's a big, um, there's a initiative to try and embed information about a piece of recorded music into the file that exists on the blockchain. So for instance, I have a friend who's a professional concert level violinist. Okay. And she and she's played on a lot of incredible soundtracks, classical music albums, but she never gets credited by name. Yeah, because right. Part of the union rule of that is just that like the orchestra is hired, but you don't have to list the entire orchestra. Mm. Um and if you're essentially using digital information, there's a lot more room and you might be able to go, "Hey, I'm interested in Karenza Peacock on violin, show me all the orchestras she's played in and all that, you know, like there's just room to sort of like cross-reference things. And I got into music um, a lot by following sort of clues on albums, like, oh, this person produced that, let me see what else they produced. Uh-huh. And, oh, look who the drummer was on that and me he's too. also on that. And and that's that's why I actually value collaboration and I, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm sort of careful with collaboration because... I like collaborating with people whose vibe I like because I do believe in the innate connective tissue of collaboration and that my, for instance, my vibe on you was I didn't go and check out every single thing you've done, but because I liked your vibe, I always felt reasonably confident that if anyone from my audience then wants to follow up with what you're done, it's going to be done with intelligence and critical thinking and, you know, interesting culture. And so, so anyway, it just seems like, these are solutions that we need to figure out and blockchain does provide some of those. So, yeah. so again, it's not an area I went super, super deep on, but I, 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 do, I did really like the model of it. I thought it was cool. The model of it is interesting because basically, so blockchain is um, decentralized global data storage. And so that means that exactly as you say, people can verify who's saying what, which makes it a lot more secure. And I was, I was looking at this website, uh, it's called Blocktivity, and their motto was embrace decentralization, heal the world. And I thought Ben would like that. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because in some ways the world is also being 
made much more complicated through decentralization. Yeah. Um, that's why it's quite hard to tackle radicalization on the internet because whether it's ISIS or QAnon or, you know, whatever fundamentalist group or Christian fundamentalist group, you know, whatever you get involved in, it's not like there's necessarily a, an office where you can go, excuse me, can I please speak to the uh, the secretary of ISIS? Um, my cousin got radicalized. It, it just, you know, it's like the decentralized yeah. nature of information is making it complicated. But so I'm not sure I 100% buy into um, that it will heal the world. Mm. But I do think that information not being under the control of one particular entity or Rupert Murdoch or whoever it is, is probably a good thing. I downloaded the um, Murdoch blocker that you oh, yeah, um, yeah, linked yeah. to on. Yeah, I'm going to put that in the show notes for the episode of yeah. the show. Yeah, It's pretty fun. I mean, I just sort of think that like, um, you know, the way I've been thinking a lot about activism lately, because for me, a lot of my activism was leading up to this election. But then you're like, wow, it was also a massive sense of identity, I think, on both sides, um, of how much time and energy people were putting into fighting this most recent battle. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think finding ways of activism being sustainable and long-term and not always as, like, sort of big ticket, yep. um, not as sexy, just being, like, you know, the way you live your life, the principles you live by, the apps you put on your phone, the, you know, the choices you make as a consumer, all of those things. Consumer activism, I think, is a big part of it. And the answering that question of what now becomes a, a lot easier, I think, if you are diversifying your portfolio of interests. You know, uh, I think about how much richer my life has become since I stopped putting so much stress on myself to perform in my career and instead started thinking about like, oh, I love the way that person tells that story or God, basketball is such good drama, you know, like just that process of identity and investment is one that I find really fascinating. And to that end, I think cryptocurrency is really attractive, right? Like I just... Yeah, yeah. You know, I, and I, I don't know how it's I... It's having a good day today. Yeah, um, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I think it's like with any of these things, there's um, same with the internet and same with like a scene of music. Mm -hmm. Like there's like the gold rush moment, but then there's the practical question of like how do these things impact our lives and what positive change can be brought about through them. And, yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of... I, I try and keep a optimistic attitude about technology that obviously it presents us with new challenges, but we should be collectively problem-solving. I agree. And, and yeah. the problem that it sounds like Steemit was predisposed to try and solve was sort of like Spotify, right? The, the methodology that means that artists, creators of content have had their work devalued so significantly over the past 10, 15 years. And now their income streams have to be different. Like if you think about it, the way that people consume music is not as profitable anymore for artists. And your job of being on social media all day, every day, isn't profitable really for you at all, unless you're starting to get into like influencer marketing and selling stuff on the side, but you have to weigh up your audience and the, uh, the value that that would bring to them. I wonder if 
what the beauty of this platform, Steam, is, is in saying to the creators, hey, here's some money for your music. And I know that you released a song on the platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did it go? Well, I mean, you know, all of these things. I wrote this song called um, Dinner with Chris Stein that I released just on that. Unblocked. Again, I want to like, I, I, people shouldn't run over because the whole thing is sort of collapsed now. So it's not oh, that. Yeah. There's probably better places to do that kind of thing now. But, but yeah, I mean, I wrote this song called Dinner with Chris Stein about this night I had dinner with a, he's the guitar player from from Blondie. And, yeah. um, and we had dinner probably in 1999 in New York. And he was, so he was probably in his 40s or, I'm not sure, maybe his 40s then or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he'd probably be in his 60s now. And he already was saying, he said, if I was a teenager now, I wouldn't be starting a rock band. I'd be getting into hacking. <laughs> and at the time, I what thought it was, yeah, at the time, though, I thought it was like, um, I just thought it was sort of almost like a washed up thing to say. Because yeah. it's like, oh, yeah, that's what people who have had their fun are like, well, it wasn't as good as it was in my day. That's how mm. I was hearing it. But what, what I wasn't really hearing was how tapped into what where the juice actually was with technology and how excited he was by that. And yeah. um, so, so the song I, I wrote, Dinner with Chris Stein, Maybe you can link to that too. And the thing is, um, for sure, uh, it's just about asking those big questions about. I think at the end of the song, I say, um, "Is it one or the other? Do I have to pick a side? Is it digital subversion or rock and roll suicide? Does all <laughs> magic does all magic have its moment? Does every moment have have its time?" I had dinner with Chris Stein one night in nineteen ninety nine. So those mm. those questions about technology and progress versus like raw animal experience, which is what rock and roll speaks to. I mean, the side of us that wants to be a musician is not making a career choice. It is, (laughs) it's getting a boner. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it's purely animal. And I mean that for men and women, you know, like it is, it is, it's a sexual experience. It's a, it's a, it's an experience of the blood thickening and the pulse quickening and how do you balance thinking smart about the modern world and having this beast inside you that wants to feel a (laughs) shamanic beat behind it you know yeah yeah (laughs) i feel like there are bands who do that really well bands who know their audience intimately and just hammer it home in a way that means that they get to be fucking rock stars like that to me is that's brand marketing and i think that that is really smart in the way that these people would think about writing their songs. You know, the other person who's really got it figured out is John Feldman. I don't know about him. So he is, if you think about like every pop punk song from let's say 2000 to 2004, he probably had some hand in writing. He was also, he's also the singer of Goldfinger, the um, Scar band who are still active. He was a record executive for I think Warner, just one of these fascinating people who will then tour Australia and pick up Dune Rats and produce their record and find all of these artists who worship at the Church of Feldman and just um, he is able to, and perhaps more so than any other artist, has has just found this like really interesting way to still like be a punk and make his like heavy ska music but also 
work his way into the mainstream music culture. You know, like that anthem by Good Charlotte is a song that he wrote. I found that out yesterday and I was gotcha. like, gotcha. That's sick. Yeah, I mean, I guess I think of, uh, when I think of balancing art and commerce, to me, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to mean there's, you've found a way to make something for everyone. Mm. Um, I think the key to it for me is really sustainability. I'm interested in, to me, that I haven't, I don't know him particularly, but that model seems to rely on massive commercial success yeah. in order to counteract the niche kind of things. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and that that to me is almost like, okay, that to me is like the Jack Antonoff model or the um who else does that um like i mean sia kind of does that too like it's like a model of going i'm gonna take the top prize and then i can do whatever i want whereas i'm kind of like interested in i i, I used to really chase that model yeah how is that different um, to the the um catch my disease model catch my disease i i didn't think of it in terms of catch my disease. like catch my disease at the end of the day is still a very weird song to be a hit. <laughs> um, like the moment of writing that was not about writing a hit. It was about writing a fun song. Yeah. Like backstage, we're just having fun writing it. I think of more like the, uh, you know, the person who knows how to almost, uh, you know, there's like the, uh, like Jack Antonoff has an ability to, as well as making his bleachers stuff, which is more niche, makes something to use a different voice that speaks very much to teenage girls that might not listen yeah. to his music, right? Yeah. Um, and that sounds similar to this guy, John Feldman. Mm. I'm, I'm personally interested in, increasingly, as I get older, there not being a division between voices that I use um, and mm. not meaning that not meaning that I, there can't be more emphasis. Like I might do a project for kids yeah, and it will have a different feel than uh, maybe than a song like Born for This Bullshit on my new record. You know, it's gonna right. be, like it's slightly different. But actually the viewpoint, the message, the aesthetic even should kind of be like in harmony. Um, not like essentially not having like part... Um, Office at the front, party at the back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like what I'm talking about is um, I'm interested in finding a way to be the exact same person. Yeah. In all these different scenarios. And in my experience, when I've tried to base that model on mainstream success versus like indie involvement and things, it's created a division in which I'm present in neither fully. Yeah, you found disharmony. Um, yeah, and so I, I just, it's interesting. Yeah, I just feel now more like I'd rather work on small to mid-level projects that consistently get a step closer to me expressing my own personal truth mm. um, rather than um, like, yeah, like big ticket ones that then the other ones disappear in the ether, disappear in the ether or something. Anyway, and I'm figuring this all out as I live, obviously. Mm. I think uh, I think the name of this episode is going to be Mullet Music. <laughs> Sounds good. Ben, let's leave it there. What time do you get out tomorrow? 
we get out, we leave here at 9 a.m. Oh, wow. So should we do like, should we do like one more in the afternoon, like one more like out of quarantine? Yeah, I'd that love can be that. the last one. Yeah, let's do that now that yeah. you're out and uh, have put your feet on the ground and done the whole bit. Okay, right on, man. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, mate. Ben Lee in Quarantine is a collaboration between me, Max Quinn, and Ben Lee. I'm doing all the mixing and producing and editing and stuff. Sorry if you run into any pops or clicks or bung audio. I'm trying. Thank you to Ben. You can find him on the internet at Ben Lee Music. You can say hi to me at Max Quinn. We'll have another episode for you real soon.